All right, well, grab your Bibles. <clears throat> That's pretty much how I'm going to start every sermon from here on out. So grab your Bibles. Uh, make your way to the Gospel of John. We're actually going to begin in John chapter 7, verse 53, and we're going to run through John chapter 8, verse 11. Our passage this morning is a little unique. It's a little different. And actually, at the beginning of the week, as I began setting out to prepare, I, I, I didn't know if I should actually preach on this particular passage, and I'll explain that here in a moment. Now, Christians are familiar with this particular passage of Scripture. Many of them actually love what happens in the events that are recorded here in John. It's tied to the Feast of Booths, which we've been looking at for several months back in John chapter 7. And in John, the Gospel of John, it's, that's tied to the eighth day where we wrapped up last week, uh, wrapping up that chapter and that is the day that people went home. Verse 53 actually tells us that, uh, which is the end of John chapter 7. But before reading this particular passage, I want to deal with the issue concerning this passage. In your Bible, you should find a notation, most likely before verse 53, which should read something along these lines, that the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. And in fact, some Bibles you can find that completely omit this passage of Scripture and from John 7.52 jumps immediately to John 8, verse 12. The comment means that the earliest Greek texts which have been discovered concerning the Gospel of John, this particular event was not found in them. And so it caused many church fathers, many commentators, to just avoid the passage altogether. And as I began preparing to preach this morning, I was having an issue trying to find commentators who actually dealt with the passage. And I was telling Jamie, it was getting kind of frustrating in trying to get enough material so I can understand everything is going on along with the context and what Jesus said and what Jesus did and, and all that. Now, the strongest opinions about this particular passage that is missing is that it actually originally belonged within the Gospel of Luke and has simply been misplaced into the Gospel of John. Some believe this passage needs to be in the middle of chapter 7, uh, following verse 37, which deals with the last day of the festival of booths. Some believe that this passage belongs between verses 44 and 45 of chapter 7, before the officers return to the chief priests and Pharisees. And there are others who believe this event should be placed at the final, as the final event in the Gospel of John to back up what he was led to write in verse 21-25 when he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so that would to back up that particular statement. The best thought that I came across concerning this passage is that it was, in fact, a part of the Gospel of Luke originally, and somehow it found its way into the Gospel of John. And so this makes individuals place this passage in Luke chapter 21, at the very end of the beginning of the chapter, because Luke writes, or at the very end of the chapter, Luke writes, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him, which is a very similar language that we find in the opening of chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2. The other reason that many people attach this particular passage into the gospel of Luke 
is because the linguistic style or the writing style mirrors more of Luke's writing style, which we can find in that gospel and in the book of Acts, more than it does John's writing style. And if we were to read through the gospels, we can see that each gospel writer was led by the Spirit to write in their own particular writing style. So it led to the question, if there's so much controversy surrounding this particular passage, then why are we going to look at it this morning? Now, there's nothing in this passage which contradicts the words of Jesus Christ nor the actions of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in this passage which contradicts the actions of the religious leaders and their views of Jesus Christ. In all four Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find numerous occasions when the religious leaders would come to Jesus with a question or a situation in order to trap him or to test him, which is what is taking place in our passage this morning. Our focus this morning is the adulteress's advocate. So let's read it, and we'll walk through it. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Even though there may be some uncertainty about the timing of the events or the placement of this particular passage within the Gospels, there's a lot for us to learn from it and a lot from, for us to take from it. First, let's go to the beginning, the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives was located to the east of Jerusalem. It was on the road heading to Bethany. And as you would have to go out to the Mount of Olives, you would have to pass the Garden of Gethsemane. And I bring this up because Jesus has been in Jerusalem this entire time. He's going to return for his final time at the festival of the Passover, where he would be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately crucified. So Jesus, God in the flesh, would walk by the place knowing where all of this was going to take place. We aren't told in the Gospel of John why Jesus went to this particular location, but Luke seems to imply that Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem... We'll go out to the Mount of Olives, also known as Olivet, as, and find it as a place to sleep. It's a place where he could find rest, a place where he could get away from all the commotion that was going on within the city of Jerusalem. And though we aren't told here that the disciples were with him, it always is implied throughout the Gospels that when we mention Jesus, the disciples are somewhere close by. There's only a couple instances when we can't take that implication, and that is when Jesus sends them out to do the ministry. 
Now, if you remember from chapter 7, which we spent quite a bit of time on, it was at the temple where all the activity was taking place, and the crowds would gather, and they would listen to Jesus. And again, here in the beginning of chapter 8, that's where all the action takes place once more. And so I want to see through this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders and this woman, the difference between religion and Christianity. And you might be thinking, well, isn't Christianity a religion? Yes, it is categorized as a religion. But Christianity is a religion based on a relationship with God, which can only be found through the complete work of Jesus Christ. And then those who are called upon Jesus Christ and then call themselves Christian have been empowered with the Spirit of God so they can live a life that is holy and pleasing to Him. When I say religion, particularly today... I'm referring to individuals who are more legalistic, individuals who have their list of things to do. They believe that they can do the work and they can seek to prove themselves by what they do or don't do or what they know. And so Jesus is at the temple in our passage. And it's happened in the past, it's happened all throughout chapter 7. When he arrives, a crowd begins to gather. We're told in verse 2, he sat down and taught. And the posture of sitting during this particular culture was the posture of taking a role of a teacher. The teacher would sit down. The crowds would surround them. Those in front would most likely sit down or get lower, and the people behind would be standing up. Also, you could hear what was being said and taught. And we aren't told what Jesus was teaching in this particular moment. Perhaps he's elaborating on what he already taught when he was at the temple in chapter 7. If it is attached to Luke chapter 21, Luke writes that all people came to him in the temple to hear him. So whatever Jesus was teaching, some reason we're not supposed to know in this particular occurrence. John's focus is on what transpires while Jesus is teaching, as the scribe and the Pharisees emerge on the scene. As a reminder, the scribes and the Pharisees were opponents to Jesus. In chapter 7, it was revealed that Jesus knew that they wanted to kill him. He actually made that announcement in the middle of the feast while all the crowds were gathered there on that day. The scribes were the teachers of the law. They were predominantly Pharisees, and the Pharisees would interpret the law to the people. And so this helps us understand the statement in verses 4 and 5. Before we look at that statement... Here's a visual of what happened in verse 3 when we read the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Jesus is teaching to a very large group of people. Verse 2, it says all the people, but the gospel writers tend to over-exaggerate at times just to let us know it is a very large amount of people that are gathered in this day. And as Jesus is sitting there and he's teaching, these religious leaders take it upon themselves to push their way through the crowd, gathered around Jesus so they can bring this woman who had been caught in adultery, and here's what they do. They place her right in the middle of all those who are gathered before Jesus. The international version reads that they made her stand before the group. The Amplified Bible says that they made her stand in the center of the court. And we know from verse 6, this whole ordeal was meant to test or trap Jesus, and we'll unpack that in a moment. But ultimately, here are these religious leaders, and they wanted to humiliate this woman. And this is what, re- what religious people do. 
Some use religion to bring others down. The religious leaders wanted to belittle this woman. Now, what she had been caught doing was, in fact, against the law of God, and there were guidelines in the law on how God should handle the situation. But their goal was to humiliate her, not to correct her. One way religious people bring others down is they cast judgment. These religious leaders were throwing their judgmental stones at this woman by making her a spectacle. Last time I was a youth pastor on staff, I encountered individuals using this tactic. There were several people I would call religious in that particular church. They would look at someone and see how they dressed. They would hear how they talked and how they would act, and they would cast their judgmental stones at them. They would put them in a particular category. I've shared this particular story before, but it was years ago. It was at that particular church we had a student show up on a Sunday morning. He had been coming to Sunday nights and Wednesday night youth gathering, but this was the first time he showed up on a Sunday morning, and he came by himself, no family with him, no friends, and he shows up, and he's wearing a hat, and he walks into the sanctuary or the worship hall, and I remember he walks over to the left side and finds a seat, and a gentleman in that church who was a deacon goes up to this young teenage boy and says in a very loud voice, so everyone in the worship hall could hear him, Son, you better take that hat off. It is disrespectful. It is rude. And so you can either take that hat off or you can leave. And guess what the boy did? He left. And he never came back to any youth events. Jesus gives us a method on how to handle situations which may cause offense or sinful. And I don't think wearing a hat in church is sinful. But in Matthew chapter 18, what Jesus tells us is that if someone has sinned against you or has offended you, you are to go to that individual privately. If that doesn't fix the situation, you are to find two or three other witnesses and you go to that individual still privately to talk with them about it. If that doesn't work, you take the matter to the church If that doesn't work, Jesus says you're to treat that individual as an unbeliever. That doesn't mean you cast them out. Because if they're an unbeliever, that means we are to love them with the gospel and to share the gospel with them. These religious leaders in our passage today felt they were justified in how they were handling this situation. But again, we know their true intentions because it tells us. So the accusation is brought to light in verse 4. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And just put yourself in this woman's shoes. You've done something you know you shouldn't have done, and you get caught in the act. And then men, who you have been told to respect since you were a very young person, parade you through the city into the temple in front of a large group of your peers and announces to everyone there what you have done. Put in today's perspective, how would you like it if the pastor started calling out everybody's individual sins through the microphone? You probably wouldn't want to come back. You'd probably be ashamed. Unfortunately, if you were to go on the World Wide Web, you can actually find videos of pastors doing this from the pulpit. The tactic the religious leaders were using was a power trip. They wanted to show they were right and Jesus was wrong. 
And this is another thing religious people do. Some use religion to start a fight. Now, I've never understood Christian protesters. And hear me when I say that. There are things as believers we do not condone. There are things as believers we do not agree with. But I've never heard, nor have I ever seen, a woman who is pregnant walking into an abortion clinic to see a sign that says, if you do this, you are a murderer. And they say, oh my, you're right. I need Jesus. I've never seen that happen. Last week, Jason, Charlie, and I, we went up to a conference in Kansas City. It was at the seminary there. And a group of people from the church out in Kansas, which likes to protest everything, including Jason's beloved Foo Fighters, were gathering on the curb of the seminary, and they were pulling out their signs. And this is what one of them read. Christians created fags. And as I read that sign, I thought, that's really hypocritical because I'm pretty sure that church out in Kansas claims to be Christian. It's not, though. It's a cult. They protest anything and everything. And these religious leaders brought this woman in order to trap Jesus because they needed some charge to bring against him. They were looking for a fight. They were looking to prove that they were right. Jesus is wrong. Now their accusation concerning verse 5, now in the law, did have some scriptural grounding. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, it deals with what God's people are to do if a man or woman is caught in the act of adultery. In Leviticus chapter 12, it says the same thing. And what they're supposed to do is they are to stone them to death. The problem was there was very, or is very little evidence that the Jewish people actually did that at this point in time in history. This was part of the trap. You see, they knew Jesus was a merciful individual. They knew Jesus was known to associate, eat with, and fellowship with people that they classified as sinners. They also knew Jesus was an individual that the Jewish people were looking to as a teacher and one who explained the law of God with authority. And so their trap is, how are you going to interpret the sentencing of an adulterer when God has clearly said what to do? But there also is another issue. If Jesus were to say, let's go with the stoning, let's, let's follow the word of God, then he would have been calling for capital punishment to be given. And when he would have done that, the problem is the Roman government did not allow the Jewish people to inflict capital punishment, and so Jesus would have been in trouble with, the Rome, with Rome. And this is why the religious leaders eventually had to take Jesus to Pilate in order for him to be crucified. And so it appears this trap, Jesus is kind of at this impasse. The other issue which emerges from Deuteronomy and Leviticus passages is that it states that both the man and the woman that are caught in adultery are both to be brought forward for stoning. Yet we see these religious leaders have no man with them. They only have the woman, which points to a few things. 
We can know, we can look in history, we know that this particular moment in time, that this was a male chauvinist society. They might not have brought the man because maybe their mentality was, well, it really was the woman's fault. She did seduce him. Another option is that the man was really fast and he got away, but that seems kind of like a comical type of thing because that means there's a streaker somewhere in the streets of Jerusalem. Another thought, and I think is more likely, is that it was one of the religious leaders who was the man that committed the act of adultery with the woman. And we don't know, but the point is they wanted to hold Jesus to the standard of the law when they weren't willing to hold themselves to the same standard. So is there anything about this word test there in verse 6? Some versions have it as the word trap. It's the same Greek word that we read in other places as the word tempt. Matthew 4.1, we're told, And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the word tempted and test, exact same Greek word, which lets us know these men aren't out for truth. They aren't out to show the crowds that they have a zeal for the word of God. They're using the exact same tactic as the enemy. It's another thing religious people sometimes do. Some use religion for their personal gain. Fortunately, there are a lot of people who call themselves pastors who have used the name of Jesus Christ for their own benefit. I remember one particular time many years ago, I was flipping through the channels, and I came across this older gentleman. He was sitting in a chair, and he had a nice suit on. And, and what made me stop is I saw him holding the Bible, and I was like, I don't recognize him. I want to see what he has to say. And as he's looking into the screen holding up his Bible, He's telling all the people who had been listening to whatever he said leading up to this. If you would send this amount of money in to this ministry to support this programming, I have prayed over these napkins, and I will mail them to you. And whatever ailment you have going on in your life, you just rub that napkin on that body part, and you will be healed. But you need to send this amount of money in. I know there are individuals and pastors in our nation and throughout our world that live in mansions and guarded communities. They own expensive cars. They have private jets for the ministry. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus didn't even own a home. He had one pair of clothes. He walked almost everywhere he went unless he borrowed another man's donkey. When he crossed the Sea of Galilee, it was most likely by borrowing Peter, James, or John's boat, or maybe all three. He stayed in other people's homes when he traveled, or he slept outside. When he sent his disciples out to do the ministry, he told them not to take anything with them, including money, but only to take the clothes on their back and the staff in their hand. He came right out and said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And this is the model we are to follow. We need to take on John the Baptist's stance that he must increase, but I must decrease. See, Christianity is not about our personal gain or what we can get from it. We've already been given forgiveness and salvation. There's nothing more that we need. Christianity and being a Christian is about gaining other lost souls for the kingdom of God. 
These religious leaders weren't going to let up. Verse 7 says they continued to ask him. What that means is they were being relentless with their question. They were being persistent to the point of being demanding, wanting Jesus to respond. All the while, you've got to love our Lord and Savior. What's he doing? He's having arts and crafts time in the dirt. He's just doodling there with his finger. And I love the language of verse 6 and verse 8. Is that it says Jesus bent down. In verse 8, once more, he bent down. We have to keep in mind he's already sitting. So it's literally he's sitting and he's just leaning over, doodling in the dirt. The word means bent down means that he stooped. He stooped over, which is a great word to use in this particular moment in time because Jesus is revealing he's not going to stoop to these individuals' levels of hypocrisy and judgmentalism. The only thing he says to these men is found in verse 7. And it's a pretty familiar saying. Let him who is out sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, going back to the law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the law said that whoever was the first witness to catch someone or some ones in the act of adultery, that they were to be the first person to throw the first stone. And that's why I think the co-adulterer was one of these religious leaders. And everyone wants to speculate, what was he writing? Some say he was writing the name of the religious leader. Some say he was the co-adulterer. Some say he was writing these men's own sin in the dirt. Some say he was writing out Jeremiah 17, 17, which reads, O Lord, hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. But we don't really know. God, the Spirit, didn't lead the writer to, to tell us what exactly he was writing. And if you're one of those, I'm just, man, I really want to know. Well, if you're a believer, and Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, one day you can ask him face to face. What did you draw? But Jesus wasn't breaking or abolishing the law. He was simply reminding these men who knew the law, if they wanted to proceed with this, then whichever one of them caught this woman in the act of adultery must to be the first one to throw the stone. And these men knew they could not perform that task because it was a capital punishment and they were under Roman rule. So game, set, match, Jesus. And he goes back to doodling. And after the accusers of this woman hear what Jesus says, they understand what he means, they leave. And this is when Jesus finally addresses the woman there in verse 10. This woman who had just been belittled. She'd just been completely humiliated in front of all of her peers. And when it says that Jesus stood up in verse 10, it means that he stood up to look at this woman, to look in her eyes, to treat her like a human being that was loved by God, to treat her like an individual who's made in the image of light and likeness of God, even though her sin had just become public news. And this is what Christianity does. 
Christianity restores those who are broken. We've all been broken. A commentator quoted St. Augustine. You know, Jesus grants pardon, not acquittal. Since the call to leave off sinning shows he knew she was indeed guilty of the adultery. They, speaking of the leaders, wanted to condemn but lacked the opportunity. He, being Jesus, could have done so, but he did not. And here's mercy and righteousness. He condemned the sin, but not the sinner. But more than that, he called her to a new life. The gospel is not only the forgiveness of sins, but a new quality of life that overcomes the power of the sin. And we have to keep in mind with Jesus' statement in verse 7. He would have been the only one at the temple that day who could have thrown the stone. Because he was without sin. But he tells this woman, I don't condemn you either. Or go. And from now on, sin no more. And what he's saying in letting us know is that this woman most likely was a prostitute. And that her lifestyle of prostitution, that is what Jesus was calling her out of. To leave it behind. He was calling her out of a habitual practice of sin to lead a new life of freedom. And Jesus gives us the same call today and for every human being to leave our life of sin and find our freedom in Christ. And this is why we share the gospel. It's because God created us for a relationship with him. But it is our sin which separates us from that relationship. It has broken that relationship with God. And we can't be good enough and do enough good things to mend that relationship. But that's why Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life, to be one without sin, and to die on the cross for the sins of the world, to be placed in a tomb, but walk out three days later, to show that he has the power over death, the authority to forgive sins, and the authority to grant eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God is extending the invitation to you. He loves you. You're made in his image and likeness. But without Jesus Christ, your relationship with him is broken. If you need to come down and say, Pastor, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. I want eternal life. I want to know I'm going to heaven. I'm going to invite you to come down and just say, Pastor, I need to be saved. Or whatever comes out of your mouth, and we will pray together. We will celebrate together. But this is a time of invitation, a time of response. I'm going to invite Nick to come up and lead us in the song one more time. I want to pray over us before we do. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for seeing us in our sin and saving us and forgiving us and claiming us and knowing us and allowing us to know you. Father, help us to be individuals who are reaching out to the broken in this world because there is a lot of brokenness. And just to love them and not to condemn them, Lord, to imitate Christ before them. And Father, I pray this morning, if there's someone that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. They would walk down this aisle and they would confess you as their Lord and Savior. Continue to be glorified in this moment. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.